Welcome to the Halftime Scholars podcast, the podcast series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging scholars. I'm your host Suren, and thanks for joining the show. Pathologization continues for people seeking access to gender-affirming healthcare. On this episode, we speak with Rebecca Howe, PhD researcher from the University of Sydney. Rebecca's research is located within the complexities of work to depathologize trans, gender diverse and non-binary people. On this episode we discuss insights from Rebecca's research analyzing policies that guide healthcare gender affirming practices. Welcome Re- Rebecca and thank you for joining us on the show. Hi Sarin, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I guess um, like we normally start I'd like to, uh, you know, find out what inspired you to get into this line of research. I guess I've been working as a social worker. So I'm, yeah, my PhD is in the Faculty of Social Work or the School of Social Work. So I've been working as a social worker for a long time, almost maybe coming up to 10 or 15 years. And I have been working in a specialist organize, a specialist like LGBTI youth service and am also part of the LGBTI community. And so I guess that was kind of the grounding for being interested in looking at policies that affect trans people who want to transition using like medical technologies so like surgeries and hormones and different things because i saw those policies directly affecting people in my daily work and also in my in my in my life and in my community within the people that i spend time with and that i love so i guess that that was something that i yeah got me really passionate i guess interesting so how did you find, um, you mentioned you have uh, obviously uh, a wealth of work experience. Uh, how did that experience uh, in terms of like work help that translate into, you know, the initial part of your research? Did that frame line of inquiry uh, quite a lot or was it uh, something totally different from the practical or practice side of things to the, uh, you know, the research conceptualizing and the more academic kind of starting point of your uh, research when i first started my phd i found that i was surrounded by a lot of people who were drawing upon their master's research to make a phd and i did a master's by coursework and so i didn't have that like research base already so i i was definitely like um feeling a little bit yeah just had a few feelings about that like what am i doing but on the flip side was that i was already quite across the issues, I guess, like I always was fairly well informed about about gender, like trans stuff and trans issues. And I was across some of the broader politics within the field, because I think that it's really difficult when you're coming into a field like so say, like I'm also looking at settler colonial theory and like I don't really know the politics that are associated with this particular theorist or that particular theorist and it's only after a little while and talking to people do I, people say oh that person's actually maybe doesn't have a good reputation or they're a bit problematic because these people find that a bit you know challenging so I already had that going coming in so I found that really useful in terms of like maybe the more getting my head across the the research or like the field of study but when it came to designing my research I 
I am really grateful that I already had like uh, a bunch of like networks specifically and I also had experience I guess because LGBTI populations and especially young people are over researched so I've also kind of been in a lot of situations where people were just annoyed and frustrated and disappointed by their participation or how they were treated by researchers so that also was really helpful in shaping what I was going to do. That threw up a couple of questions. Uh, do you find that probably more specifically in terms of like law and policy etc do you find um, like for example in say certain developing nations or say in certain asian countries a lot of their outlook towards you know certain minorities or certain communities are shaped yet by uh, you know what certain laws or certain acts were that were you know uh, around maybe 150 years ago 120 years ago do you find that the case in different areas of some of the issues uh, within the LGBTI community? How did you find that in your, I guess, uh, you know, in your research or in your kind of a theoretical uh, framework? Does any of this, that kind of thing come about or come up, come up? Yeah, it's a big question that I'm struggling with at the moment. So I guess that I'm interested in settler colonial theory as opposed to post-colonial theory or studies, I guess, because in Australia, it's it's a settler colonial place and so we can't it's I find it I find I understand post-colonial theory but I find it really difficult this idea of post um, even though it's used in a post-structural kind of way I think in the Australian context there's very little recognition that of the continuing practices of colonization right so there's this discourse that colonization happened and no one there's not a lot of talk about it continuing as a structure um, or continuing to structure the way that policies you well, to continue to structure Australian society and that I have I work from a premise that that policies are are how are govern us that they're like the fine print they're the they're the rules and the practice for how for how we're governed so my whole research is looking at how how gender is governed through access to gender affirming medical care so it's kind of saying that you know there's these like colonial logics or ideas about who counts as a good citizen or a proper citizen and in Australia and in a lot of places that's a white a white person that's a person who has land that's a person who's able-bodied and that's a person who can uh, who is in the kind of relationship that heterosexual relationship that has children and so I, that's kind of the underlying logic against a lot of policies that's not really spoken about or recognized and I'm kind of interested in analyzing how that plays out in in these two policies that I'm looking at so one and I guess that it's different because I'm looking at an Australian policy and a, and a policy created for the Spanish context. So Spain is, um, I guess, kind of in a similar position as maybe like England in the sense that it was like these countries that were spearheading or like enacting a lot of colonization, right? So I'm still trying to get my head around the Spanish context because I'm so familiar with like the English context in Australia because that's, you know, where I'm located as an Australian settler. A community sort of, I guess, this space being over researched so what what uh, has been the the positive side of things and the negative side of things and what is your overall opinion like in which what sort of discourse is becoming dominant from if you could put it in a certain way that all the research dollars is, is going to a certain you know in one in this community uh, how does that sort of uh, 
play out in your opinion? I think it's a challenge, right? Because I guess the main focus of research is around health research, right? Because trans, gender diverse and non-binary people are in that so-called at-risk category, right? Where they represent communities that experience really high levels of like, you know, emotional distress and difficulties in living in terms of, and also in terms of they experience a lot of oppression and violence, really high rates um, of suicide and self-harm. So there's like a lot of like medically focused research happening and it's funded as well. And, and I'm not really, I'm not really, I don't want to weigh in and say that's good or bad. Like it's important for, for there to be knowledge created to, to change all of that kind of stuff. My research is heaps different it's kind of operating on a totally different level around that kind of stuff it's a it's just a a straight up policy analysis and because I was aware of this like over research and I think that's attention because I think I my experience says that a lot of trans and gender diverse people and non-binary people are okay about participating research in that in that they see that it's not just talking about them but actually doing something to to make their lives better and and that's good and you know that if I was to be doing that research that's the kind of research that I wanted to be doing but I specifically chose a form of reciprocal research which meant that so I'm doing a policy analysis um, and uh, using a specific approach and what I did was through my networks contacted a community of practice so like a group of counselors who work specifically or like largely with transgender diverse and non-binary people and I invited them to do a focus or a couple of focus groups with me to to learn the approach and then also use that approach to do their own policy analysis so it meant that it's not just me doing the analysis it's a group of people who are also affected by you know these policies to do that analysis and we do it kind of together and that in return for them doing that, I provide, I do a bunch of tasks that the group asks me to do as a reciprocation for the time and energy that they that they um, they give over a couple of their meetings for me. Interesting. Uh, so that's uh, that's a I guess a new form of uh, it's the first time I've heard of the reciprocal nature of that, and I guess that's a very rewarding way of doing uh, doing research. So you mentioned uh, obviously the policy side of things that the core of your study. We will probably get into that uh, aspect of your study. Uh, you briefly mentioned the methodology that you're adopting at the moment. So what are the policies that you're actually looking at? Uh, what aspects and what about it uh, drove you to sort of you know, start? Yeah, okay. So I'm looking at this policy called the standards of care. And so it is a the standards of care, is it's the seventh version and they are made by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. So that's a yeah you it's an association for for psychiatrists for counselors for surgeons anyone really who's involved in supporting transgender diverse and non-binary people with medical medical transitions and so the idea was that they made these standards of care so that people had like something to be held accountable to however they're just guidelines they're not you know they're not enforceable in any way but they're kind of like you know other forms of care or standards that like GPs and that are there for other kinds of health practitioners that's the purpose and I'm comparing that to a a policy or to guidelines for care created by a consortium of transgender activists Uh, and so it's an alternative proposal to what's been put forward what has your findings uh, what has the methodology helped you discover about the two are they the same what parts are the same 
uh, talking a little bit about uh, like you, you mentioned um, you know general health practitioners or doctors uh, what parts of you know if you could give us an example of uh, of the standards of care that that are in in this particular policy what i'm really interested in or what this approach that i'm using i'm using an approach called what's the problem represented to be and it's created by carol backy and that approach is it asks six questions and then it has this seventh step where it asks you to to apply the questions the analysis to your own self or to your own analysis so it's this kind of reflective thing and what it's really asking is is saying well it's saying that policies produce problems as certain kinds of problems and they based on what they present the problem to be they they want to do certain things in response to that so and that we're governed through the way problems are represented to be common way of describing the approach is to think about so this is the a thought experiment so imagine if you own a gym and you get the water bill for your gym and it's um, really, really high, right? And you think to yourself, what am I gonna do about this problem of the high water bill? And if you decide to call a plumber, cause call a plumber and get your pipes looked at, then you think that the problem of the high water is is to do, or you're representing the problem of your um, really high water bill as a, as a problem with the infrastructure of your gym, like the building. However, if you get this high water bill and you're like, you know what? I think the people who come to my gym use too much water. I'm gonna put a timer on the shower and so it cuts off after 10 minutes. Then you think that the problem of the high water bill is the people who use your gym, right? So what I'm interested, so that's what the proposal is asking. And it, and what you choose to do is kind of based on your on your ideology or how you see the world and how you want to operate your business you know and and that's about how you see people and how you see business and stuff so this the questions are kind of asking you to kind of get at what's underneath what the problem is represented to be so i'm not heaps i'm not going through exactly what each one policy says and comparing it i'm looking at like what it's representing the problem of act so the problem of accessing care trans people to access medical care how are they representing that problem and i'm suggesting that they're representing that problem as a medical problem as a medical problem that accessing for trans people to access medical care they have a medical problem that needs treatment and so that that then there's inherently something wrong with that person to receive treatment and both policies do something different with that representation. So one kind of maintains it and the other one says, that's appalling. We really hate that paradigm. We don't like that paradigm and we want a new paradigm of human rights. So it's, a, it's, it's not about someone's individual problem. It's actually the responsibility of the state to provide everybody with healthcare and that's everybody's right to do that. And the role of health professionals is to, to support people to make the, like to support people to get the care that they need. And the other policy is about saying, no, no, we're here to guide health professionals to, and they, they kind of dance around it, but the, the, there's still this idea that, that trans people need to be judged as eligible to access like uh, transition, like medical transitions. And those eligibilities are mental health based eligibilities, right? They're in the, the DSM. So that's kind of the broad thing that I'm looking at. And yeah. <laughs> interesting. No, very interesting. It's uh, actually you, you articulated it quite, uh, quite, uh, quite well. And uh, so essentially, you have two practices or two lines of thinking uh, in terms of the policy. And one is sort of 
advocating or coming from a view or a point of view of uh, human rights uh, based and uh, the other is sort of looking at it from a medical problem that needs to be addressed yeah. in that way not, not to sort of um, I guess belittle and make that the, the root of both um, policies but that uh, that uh, perspective is uh, is sort of um, maybe provided so which of these two policies like is it the standards of care that looks at it from a human rights point of view yeah the spanish yeah, one yeah. is the is the one that's looking at from a human rights perspective a specifically non-illness <laughs> based um one um and so because that is um created by a group of people called stop trans pathologization so they're kind of really overtly saying um no we don't want an illness bundle um, it doesn't serve us, um, it harms us, it oppresses us. Whereas the standards of care are very much founded inside of a, of a medical model. They, the standards of care are saying important things, like they're saying that they, are, that they care about like consent, that they're, they're trying to, that they're, they're saying all the right stuff, but it's still based, still based on using medical language. So it, it's it's kind of a bit, it's still quite problematic. What are some of the um, issues that maybe you have seen in your uh, you know, work experience? If you, for example, take the, the standards of care, if, is that the uh, policy that Australia broadly adopts? Uh, yes. Have you, what, what have you seen in, the, you know, in, in your work experience that, that has led to, you know, in terms of um, how has that impacted the, um, the commun- trans community? as as well like uh, what are what are some evidence that you have seen from that perspective yeah it very much is a medical based approach in the real world and i um it's uh, there's a big tension there because um it's really difficult because people are are trans and gender diverse and non-binary people are asking for for medical specific medical things right um or things that are categorized as medical so you know like there is it there is a difficulty to saying well i don't want to be associated with this illness stuff but i still want things that are categorized as medical and how to kind of you know how to how to tease that apart and dance around that sort of stuff i see it really affecting people in the sense that people are still being judged they have to i guess the phrase is jump through hoops people have to see and be verified as experiencing gender dysphoria right and gender dysphoria is a real thing that people experience but it's also the name of a psychiatric disorder and you don't have to have the psychiatric disorder but you still have to be you're still measured against it you're still measured and so that has you know there's this there's a whole bunch of stuff happening where people have to see psychologists they have to see psychiatrists um, they have to see a whole slew of professionals before they can even before they can even do anything so they have to be judged as competent as stable as able all of these kinds of things that um, other people who get other forms of medical Uh, like body modifications medical body modifications don't have to do and so there's a real sense there's a real sense of um, judgment and control um, and hindrance Um, yeah yeah that's interesting so it gives definitely thought to the um, I mean you mentioned that the standards of care is uh, in its seventh version if if I'm not mistaken and have you found that uh, I'm not sure if you have sort of compared the sixth and the seventh version. Has there been, has that review helped anyway? Anyway, is there a further review being taking place? What's the conversation around it today? 
Yeah, that look, I mean, it's on the cards for an eighth version. There's nothing like there's nothing officially being said about an eighth version that I'm aware of. The version six was really bad and people are saying that there's different people say different things, but I suppose that version seven is seen as as much as much more progressive. Yeah, version seven relied on on an older diagnosis, which specifically I diagnosed. So the idea was that previously you had to be diagnosed with gender identity disorder, and that also changed around the same time as the standards of care, the new standards of care came out. So it changed from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. So they placed the focus not on identity, but the experience of distress around the fact that some people's like lived and understand sense of their gender is different to what was assigned to them and that so it wasn't just because that was who you were or what that your identity was it's because you experienced distress and this shifting of the focus was seen as a really big achievement or it was seen as like slowly riding out gender like slowly moving gender out of a psychiatric manual or as a psychiatric disorder if that makes sense so it's this this slow this idea of a slow process of reform yeah interesting Uh, so the movement has hopefully helped uh, uh, people what would you like to see you know come about if there or when there's an eighth version what uh, i guess uh, we spoke about the spanish uh, best practices guide it's more human rights focused is that something that is far away in terms of the standards of care is that what findings are sort of leading to Uh, yeah like i guess that i guess I'm at this difficult place really where I'm I'm still in the process of kind of doing my analysis and writing up my analysis and while I'm doing that I'm also thinking about that final chapter I'm like what do I want to happen or I'm also just yeah. aware of my inherent politics and my own values and and the pro- approach says so it has six questions and it says apply those six questions to your own problem representations, right? So as I'm looking at that, I'm also either agreeing with one problem representation or I'm representing the problem of something else. And so I have to apply that same analysis to what I think the problem is and or how I represent the problem to be. And so, you know, really, I'm kind of representing the problem similarly to the the Spanish best practices guide as saying, yeah, the problem is a medical, this medical paradigm, this, this whole notion of, of making out making the problem to be an individual problem and somehow located inside the body and that needs an individual response so i think that that's a problem and i think there needs to be a structural response there needs to be a, a social response and that requires fundamental social change so and change that's actually much broader than just around trans trans and gender diverse and non-binary people accessing surgery hormones it's about fundamentally changing the way that healthcare is provided in that it's free in that you know people's expertise is looked at differently or healthcare providers expertise is looked at differently and it's about a broader i have these broader politics about like abolishing psychiatry and abolishing prisons and abolishing all of these other things that are also involved in all of this sort of stuff so i'm really struggling at the moment um to think all of this stuff through <laughs> i'll not think yeah to think it through in a thesis kind of way right yeah yeah it's uh you draw quite a lot of uh, interesting uh, uh you know 
ideas to think about where society can head. I guess um, it's something that is probably going to take take time and a lot of uh, at a at a lot of different levels things that need to sort of combine to I guess move towards that greater um, I guess human rights uh, social justice um, probably based uh, equality in at 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 the highest possible level uh, moving on to the next sort of a part of our um, program what's um, what are some of the publications you are working on at the moment uh, any recent conferences you've been sort of uh, participating in how is uh, uh, i guess the uh, the other side of the phd how is you know the communication part of your uh, you know the important work you're doing uh, yeah so while i'm doing all of that stuff i last year i spoke at the conference so so the professional association that wrote the standards of care is a is a world professional association and located in the united states um, and there's also regional ones so i went to the australian regional professional association conference uh, and spoke at that which was really interesting because i'm used to speaking at academic conferences now and i went back to speaking at a health conference which is what i used to do when i was a social worker rather than like a phd student so i presented this like full academic um, piece and like it went down like a sack of potatoes it was really nice to kind of to, to connect with people you know practitioners in my field it made me really learn that's super important to think about the purpose of you being at a conference <laughs> and and the purpose of the conference and whether or not it act, you know you have to you have to speak to the purpose so that was some really wild learning for me in that i have yeah i'm just working on a uh, just finishing up a paper and a submission for a call for papers for australian social work and i think that i'm trying to be i don't know if sneaky is the right word but um strategic yeah great um the idea about writing this paper was to help me get a start on my literature review so I have this idea that oh if it doesn't get submitted at least I've done heaps of the work that I would do like why do I you know those questions that you need to answer for your lit review as in like what's happening in your field as in my field of social work um, what are the gaps in social work why is it important to talk about these things and why am I important the important person to be doing that so I'm hopefully kind of already have been got a head start on a lot of that thinking and writing in the drafts of this paper and I just apply I think just before COVID happened I was um, going to speak at a I don't know if it was a conference it was like a small I don't know workshop around depathologization or like the social construction of mental health and mental illness which I was super excited about and really challenged by and I just applied to but that got cancelled um so I don't know because it gives me time to um get my head around talking at that because I'm interested in I guess uh I guess because because Australia is is a is a colony is is colonized i think that it's really important for us to always be talking about colonization in everything that we're doing and that's why i'm talking about colonization in in a place where we might not doesn't seem obvious to talk about colonization like what has colonization got to do with policies about trans and gender diverse and non-binary people and i my argument is that well settler colonialism is the structure that is the whole foundation for this country. So of course it's the foundation for the healthcare provided in this country. Uh, and it's, you know, and I think that the, 
the policies are coming out of settler colonial states as well. So that also in, informs the way that people think about health, healthcare and gender and, and mental health. So um, based on that, I just applied to speak at a conference called Settler Responsibilities um, for Decolonization, which is happening in, in Auckland next year. So yeah, I'm super terrified, but I really love that idea of being pushed um, to really get my head thinking and being accountable, I guess, to thinking about that stuff through by talking about it in public. That's awesome. So it definitely seems uh, that you've got a, a lot of uh, different projects on the go. But in your in your uh, sort of explanation and in the, just just uh, concluded, uh, a couple of questions kind of uh, emerged, which kind of goes to our sort of final part of our discussion uh, today. Three broad, broad questions, but I'll start with the first one with, you know, you with your most recent conference you're hoping to present in Auckland. Obviously, you mentioned that we have a settler colonial uh, sort of blueprint, uh, you know, as the foundation of Australia. How do you find uh, the issues with the indigenous community? Uh, are they the same? Um, you know, what sort of... Um, difference uh, similarities how is i know um, indigenous issued in uh, issues in the you know trans uh, um, uh, non-binary and gender diverse communities sort of treated well i guess that i guess that across the board trans and gender diverse and non-binary and sister girl brother boy people indigenous peoples in australia don't have the same access that that non-Indigenous people have to care healthcare, so that even within the standards of care, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of the already embedded difficulties within Australian society. You know, in terms of you know whether you know like all the different kinds of things in terms of like how people can access healthcare providers like psychologists and psychiatrists, how far away they live, or how they have money mm-hmm. to do that, or all of that. It's really different for. For, for white, for people of colour and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to, to be, that access happens really differently. And the way that Australian society is structured is it's inbuilt into the system that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are, you know, are, are faced with like the shittest end of this, the worst end of the stick in that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think that in my research, I'm not really, I guess... I'm not really just I'm more interested in talking about and in like revealing of Australia as a as a colonized place looks like right like how that's structured in at a policy rather than specifically kind of going there or speaking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander transgender diverse non-binary sister girl and brother boys because it's not like it's not my job like as a white settler to be doing that like it's my job I think to be to be looking at and disrupting this other stuff like that's my work to be doing because I don't I don't I can't speak for I can't speak for people without permission or without that experience in that way that's that's a very wise uh, and also a very uh, respectful way of um, looking at it but the the notion or the the work you're doing in terms of exposing that or you know highlighting the structure itself that's that's uh that's definitely uh, an important step in the right direction. Uh, the the other one of the other questions I have was or ha- I had was imagine you are coming to the business end of your uh, PhD and you had to give choose you know the, the three or four most important uh, findings of your research and you had you know you were stuck for space and you had, you really had to make a big choice and I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. 
what would yeah. you <laughs> what would you think at the moment it could change obviously anything can change what at the moment what do you think some of the most key findings could be because you i believe you might be going through these you know conversations and decisions very soon yeah uh that that there is like an ideology well that the key find the key finding really is that is that that pathologization is a logic of colonization that people hold inside themselves the problem that being located inside an individual problem that that an indi- a problem is located inside an individual and it's an individual's responsibility then to fix themselves in order for them to be a productive citizen that that's a find that's what i'm finding even in both policies there's this idea towards you know this idea of of citizenship right because these ideas of rights is also really connected to this idea of citizenship and that's a, a problematic idea this idea of citizenship um yeah <laughs> i don't know if that's a, it's not a real elevator statement for findings no no <laughs> that's cool no but it's very interesting it, it goes to the dna of the country and the i guess most western civilizations uh how they are set up elevating the individual so even if you have any medical problem it's your duty to i guess you know you know fix it or help it help be part of the solution interesting and i guess probably to conclude you know post phd uh what sort of direction would you like to take in your personal journey would it be more of an academic or kind of line of work more research more practitioner uh, and and what area specifically would you like to move into that's your $64,000 question <laughs> yeah i i don't know like i started doing a phd because um well i started doing a masters actually and then realized i had the opportunity to do a phd as a as a way out of direct service work right as a social worker because i'm not interested in being a manager um it's not where my skill set is at um and that i really love theory um and it was a nice place for me to be in covid is over maybe as a <laughs> said i'm not sure like when i think of when i compare academia to social work um it's like maybe social work doesn't look so bad anymore yeah there's intentions in that but i think like i do love teaching i really love the opportunity to being pushed to write and to be pushed in my thinking and being accountable in all of those things so yeah <laughs> i i'm really feel really passionate about policy about policy analysis and i you know that's really exciting um for me so yeah whether or not it's in an academic space or a policy space but to be honest i just miss being a youth worker you know mm. like i might just who knows how the tables will how all the cards will play out right work maybe the policy work maybe it'll be academia or a combination yeah awesome yeah it's it's um it's very interesting and uh, and looking you know like you mentioned with covid as well everything's changing quickly uh, but whatever combination that be, becomes uh, i i would like you firstly firstly to thank you very much for joining us on half time scholars it's been a pleasure and a very enlightening conversation and i would like to really wish you all the very best in whatever path uh, you choose or life throws at you i'm sure you will succeed and and you know re- achieve a, a wonderful um, success in everything that you do so thank you very much rebecca and uh, thanks sir and so nice to talk with you such good questions
That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join us for the next episode.